Welcome to the Church of the Living God Mount Sterling podcast. We hope you are blessed by this message. For more information about our church, follow us on Facebook by searching for our page, Church of the Living God Mount Sterling. We would love to connect with you, pray with you, and hear what God is doing in your life. Now grab your Bibles and let's get into God's Word. All right, you ready for some Word? So a couple weeks ago, um, a couple weeks ago, the Lord put on my heart a message about, um, it was called, That Was Me. And, uh, and it was really birthed from a word of the Lord that came about us moving into a season where prodigals were going to come home and people were going to be reconnected to the family of God. And, and so uh, a couple weeks after that, the Lord laid a word on my heart that I got to preach called, That Was Me, about the perspective that we have of the Father and of Jesus is sometimes skewed. And he wants nothing more than to bring us back into connection with him. Um, so as I was preparing for this message, I was like, Lord, what, what do you want me to preach? And he laid something on my heart, and I studied it out. And, uh, and then after I had it all studied out and, and ready to go, I was like, oh, this is kind of a continuation. So I feel like God's got me in this series, if you will, of sort of uh, about prodigals returning home and about families being reconnected. And today's going to be a continuation of that. Um, but from a different perspective. And, and listen, I'm going to bring out some stuff today that the Lord showed me and that I studied out. And some of the stuff I had no idea. Like, I didn't know this stuff at all. Some of you might know this, you know, some of the stuff that's going to get brought out. But stick with me, right? Because there's going to be some really awesome perspective on a somewhat familiar story. Um, so I believe God's going to speak this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, that's in the Old Testament. Um, Joshua judges Ruth. I believe it's the order. Ruth is a pretty short book. Um, it's only four chapters, and we're going to hit a lot of it today. Um, but I promise we're going to go somewhere really, I think, really cool. Really cool. Um, I was able to uh, teach. I had the privilege of teaching uh, our college classes, uh, we, we teach Life Christian University, and um, so we just wrapped up the school year, we just ended graduations in a couple weeks, and uh, I, actually myself and, and Pastor Patrick were both teaching at the same time, he was teaching year one, and I was teaching year two, and I taught the class spiritual gifts, and so that covers, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14, talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then putting them in activation, and the last night of the class, um, we just, we just kind of laid the study aside. We got in the presence of God as a class. We just sought him, and the Lord started ministering and activating people prophetically, and there were words given, tears flowing. It was, it was so beautiful. But I shared part of the word uh, this morning. I shared part of it with them, and, and it, was, it was really exciting because several people had never heard this perspective. So I hope that we're going to get something out of it in a fresh way this morning, okay? Let's pray over the word real quick. Jesus, we thank you so much that you're in this room. We thank you so much for the lives that you've already touched. Now, God, I pray that you would take this word that you have breathed from heaven and that you would bless this word. I pray that I would be a vessel you can pour through, God. Let these words that come from you penetrate deep into our hearts so that we grow closer in fellowship with you. I pray that you would give me an utterance and an unction of your Holy Spirit to preach this good news, to preach this word, and that you would allow it 
to shape us and mold us for the season that we are in of prodigals coming home and reconnection to the family, both in this church and to our own families outside these walls. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. All right, Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to read a pretty good portion of all four chapters. So hang with me, but it's really important because there's context here that we have to establish. So we're going to start right in verse 1. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife and two sons... The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malion and Kilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. And then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her, uh, and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. Not of the Israelites and their tribes, but they took wives from the land of Moab. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They dwelt there about ten years. But then, both Melion and Kilion also died. So the women survived uh, her two sons and her husband. In other words, she was a widow from her husband dying, and then her two daughter-in-laws also became widows because the sons passed away. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard the country of, uh, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and uh, by giving them bread. So the famine had ended. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on. The way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dwelt, or as, sorry, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest in each of the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely, we will return with you to your people. So, the Israelites are dwelling in their land, and a famine strikes. And a husband and wife say, we have to escape this famine, so we're going to go into a new land. They go into a land called Moab, where the Moabites live, but the Moabites were not God's people. So, they had their own false gods, their own idols, their own culture, their own style, right? And they settled down to escape a famine, and in that time, their sons get married to two Moabite women. Um, there are certain passages of teaching outside of the Bible that say that, that at least Orpah may have even come from like wealthy family. Uh, that like the king and the king's descendants in Moab. But the sons take on two wives. They live there for 10 years. And then sadly, the husband dies, the sons die. 
And there's a word that comes that says, hey, the Lord has provided for Israel. The famine is over. He's brought bread. So Naomi says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to my homeland, where I'm from, to Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Judah specifically, the, the section of Bethlehem for the tribe of Judah. I'm going to head back there and take my two daughter-in-laws with me. But as she approaches it, she says, you know what? What am I doing taking you guys? You guys have been so gracious to, to deal with me and, and the passing of my husband and my sons. But now you have nothing. You don't have husbands. Oh, and she even goes as far as to say, what do, you, what do you expect me to do? Is there sons in my womb for you that you can remarry? Are you going to wait for them? That doesn't make sense. So tell you what, with blessing, go back to Moab. Go back to your families in Moab. Because I'm your in-law, but now there's no, there's no legal reason, according to the law, why you have to stay with me now. So go with blessing back to Moab, get remarried, and, and obviously there was a connection there because it says they all wept. They were all sad by this. Parting is such sweet sorrow, right? So they're not excited about this. And, and Naomi, she has to kind of convince them, like, seriously, guys, I'm going to miss you. I really am, but, like, you need to go. So verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. That word clung means to stick to or to follow, like, I'm not leaving your side. Now, they both had blessing to return. And Orpah even shows courteous uh, honor to her mother-in-law. She gives her a kiss, and with tears rolling down her cheeks, she starts to head back to Moab. But Ruth didn't kiss her. She clung to her mother-in-law. Right? And so when we see in verse 15, and she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you. Please stop begging me to go away. Or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And this line. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Naomi says, look, I know you're not from Israel. Go back to Moab, to your people, and to their gods. That's what Orpah has done. And Ruth says to Naomi, stop. Stop asking me to leave. You are my people. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. You will be my people. Your God will be my God. And she doesn't say your God will be one of the gods I now choose to follow. She said your God is now my God. The only thing that's going to move us apart at all is going to be death. And even, even in death, where you're buried, they better just put me right next to you. Because I'm going to be buried in the same place. Man, what dedication. What dedication to say this started as a marriage contract, but it ended in relationship. 
this started as me having to abide by your laws, your traditions, worship your God, because my husband, as the male authority in the house, dictates that. So when the girls came out of Moab and were married to Israelites, even though they were living in the, in the land of Moab, guess what? You have to worship the husband's God. You have to follow the, the husband's customs. Well, she is saying what started as me having to is now me saying I choose to. What started as requirement and law became fulfillment out of a place of relationship. You see the difference there? There's a difference between doing something because you're told to and doing something because you choose to out of a place of relationship. Orpah returned to her gods. Ruth refused. It could only be because Ruth said, now that I don't have to, I choose to. Right? So that, that, that's a shift there. So then we see that Naomi accepts her and she says, you know what? We have relatives in this land. So maybe you should go out and try to collect some, some provision from our relatives' fields. So in chapter 2, skipping down a little bit, verse 1, it says, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter... Not daughter-in-law. Go, my daughter. And then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. After she happened to come to the, to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Okay. So Ruth says, okay, we have relatives in the land. Let me go and uh, I'm going to glean the fields. But... We don't know these people, so I'm going to kind of hang back. And so she makes it to the part of the field that Boaz actually owns. And his servants are out gleaning the fields, his, his uh, female maidservants and his men who protect them. And Boaz takes notice. He says, now wait a minute, I haven't, I haven't seen her before. Who's that young lady? And he instructs his servants, he said, hey, look after her. Where she goes to, where, where we send our, our servants to glean, let her go glean with you. And in fact, protect her, but don't get in her way. Don't, don't mess with her. I'm telling you as the owner of the field that I'm going to protect her. And I'm going to provide provision of my resources for her and her household. Right? So eventually they kind of meet. Boaz ends up sharing a meal with her, blesses her, sends her back to Naomi. It's a very awesome exchange where she's now met someone who is of their kindred because he was related to her, her father-in-law, okay? We skip down to Ruth chapter 3 now. And I want to read this section, Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, again, daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment, and go down to the threshing floor. 
but do not make yourself known unto the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and, and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. Sounds like you have a plan. We're family. I'm sticking with you. You tell me to go do that, I'm going to do it. Naomi has this plan because she wants what's best for Ruth. She wasn't saying, hey, go see if you can talk to that Boaz guy, you know, because we need somebody to pay the bills around here. Naomi said, hey, he's a kindred. He's a kinsman. He can take care of you. Naomi's already thinking, I'm not going to be around forever. You have no husband. You need somebody who's going to provide for you. So here, here's a plan. And Ruth says, without question, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, verse 6, and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of his heap of grain, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you in all that you request, for all the people of, of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. So she goes into the threshing floor. She uncovers Boaz's feet, because that's what Naomi said to do. She lays at his feet. He wakes up. He sees her, asks who she is. She says, I'm Ruth. And he goes, right, I know you. And then he pronounces blessing on her because she had honored Naomi. He said, your, your kindness even more so now than in the beginning when you were faithful to Naomi. What's interesting is, as I was reading that passage, the Lord, the Lord kind of showed me something. When he says, you didn't choose the other young men, rich or poor, you didn't choose the young men. What's interesting is the threshing floor would have been an outdoor open area. And it would have been a time that the men would have taken the different grain that was collected throughout the day, and they would have threshed it, which means they would have separated the parts that they needed to make bread and, and provision that they needed. So the men would, would sit there and they would thresh things out. But it was a big open area, so they would kind of get to working, get to partying, laughing, having a good old time. Then they would fall asleep. When she chooses to lay at Boaz's feet, he wakes up and says, you could have chosen any of these guys. In fact, there's some younger, better looking guys than me around. Some even richer than me, surely, and, and yet you've chosen my feet. And the Lord said, there was a sinful woman in Luke who chose to sit at Jesus' feet. And, and we've taught about this, and we've studied it out, and I love this story so much. She, she gets to his feet. She pours out everything she has. She wipes uh, his, his feet. With, she cleans it with the tears of, from her, her face, and she wipes his feet with her hair. She ministers unto Jesus. 
He's in a house full of Pharisees. Now listen, Pharisees were seen by the Israelites as the top authority. It's easy for us to read the context and be like, right, and there's those wicked Pharisees that Jesus called vipers, right? Like, we, we, we kind of get in that frame of mind, but understand these guys were really well-respected. They were studious reading, readers and teachers of the law, of the, of the Torah. They were well-respected. Jesus is sitting in a room full of high-appointed Pharisees. She comes in and chooses Jesus' feet. Here's the thing. There was a lot better people that you could have picked if you were only aiming for your reputation in town. Why didn't she choose the high priest's feet? Why didn't she choose the head Pharisee's feet? Why didn't she choose the the guy who's the top dog of the Sanhedrin? Because if I'm trying to build my reputation, I want to be seen with people who are reputable. I want to be seen with people who are noticeable, who people take notice of. Oh, look, there's so-and-so. Oh, man. Yeah. They're, they're really important in our society. She could have chose to sat at one of their feet, but it wasn't about her reputation. It was about recognizing who he was. Eric Gilmore says, when she laid at Jesus' feet, she acknowledged, your feet are higher than every head in this room. Following Jesus didn't get you a good reputation, it got you killed. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And what do the Pharisees say? Whew, we got to kill this Jesus guy. And we got to kill Lazarus too. Because when people see him, they're following this Jesus guy. Because he's a walking miracle. We can't be having that. So when we kill Jesus, let's kill Lazarus too. That's what the religious leaders say. You follow Jesus, it got you killed. So she could have chosen the feet of any Pharisee in the room and said, hey, I start hanging out with this guy, and all of a sudden, my status gets elevated. And what does Jesus say? What she's done today will be talked about forever. The Pharisees were too busy going, if Jesus knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't even let her touch him. And Jesus was saying, you chose my feet. So people are going to choose to follow your example for a lifetime. Ruth is is laying at the feet of Boaz. Boaz wakes up and says, you could have chosen these other men who are in the threshing floor. You could have chosen other more influential, more prominent men or younger men. You chose me. So because you've chosen me, I will take you in. I will cover you. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. I will be that person who looks after you because everybody knows you're a virtuous woman and I am, I'm happy that you chose me. Now, there is a problem though. In the law of, of, of you know, marriage and property rights, there was somebody who sat a little bit higher than Boaz in relation. And so Boaz says, 
I would love to take you in and to even marry you. But there's another guy and we have to consult him first. Because that's the way the law works. And Boaz honored the law. He was a, a man of God. He, he honored the law. And he said, we've got to follow this thing out the right way. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friends. Sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am the next after you. And he said, wait, there's property up for grabs? All right. Sounds good. I'll redeem, I'll redeem it. Let me do it. I'll redeem it. Boaz said, okay. Now, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. The close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. The Pharisees sitting in that room said, if Jesus knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. Her reputation will ruin his reputation. Here's Boaz with the kinsmen, and he says, it's your right to buy the field. He said, I'll take the field because it expands my territory. And he said, okay, but you have to redeem Ruth and her dead husband and the lineage that comes through them as well. And he said, wait a minute. Don't you know what kind of woman Ruth is? She's a Moabitess. She doesn't even worship our gods. She lived in a foreign land with our enemies. And you want me to redeem her? She is our enemy and you want me to pull her in and make her one of us. That I cannot do. Because I'm not about to hurt my reputation. And Boaz with a smile on his face said, good. That's exactly what I was hoping you'd say. They trade shoes, which is a, a, a practice there to show possession and ownership. In front of witnesses. In front of witnesses, Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi, the lineage and the land. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, he says, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He's lifted up in a crowd of witnesses, and what is he doing? He's redeeming you. He's redeeming me. He's redeeming our lineage. He's redeeming our land. He's redeeming what would have ruined his reputation if he only knew what kind of person I was. But because I chose his feet, he says, good, I can redeem that. The world, they'll want you if it means they can expand their territory. But the minute the world has to deal with you and your brokenness, the minute the world has to deal with your past 
And they don't get that cleaned up version of you that goes along with them that makes them feel good in the good times. All of a sudden the world says, now wait a minute. I want the influence. I want the land. I just don't want you. I want what you can bring. I just don't want you. And Boaz, as a type and a foreshadow of Christ, says, I'll take it all. I'll take the land. I'll take you. I'll take your mother-in-law. I'll take the lineage. I'll redeem it all. And I'll pay for it. And then you'll become part of me and my family. I'll reconnect you because I don't just want the land. I want your heart. I want you and everything that comes with you. I want the reputation. I want the baggage. Why? So that I can give you a new name and you can come into a family where all of that stuff is completely healed and undone. Where people don't look at Ruth the Moabites, they look at Ruth Boaz's wife. The world may not want you, just your land. Jesus says, I'll take it all. And then we see that they get married. And they have a son. So picking up in verse 14 of chapter 4. Verse 14 says, they have, Ruth has the son. They're married. She's married to Boaz. She has the son. The, the baby is born. Verse 14, then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. May his name be famous in Israel. And may he, uh, and uh, may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. There's a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse and the father of David. When Jesus redeems you, he redeems your past too. Boaz didn't just want Ruth going forward. He said, I'll take Naomi too. I'll reach back and redeem your past so much so that the glory that was put in Ruth to bear a son was attributed to Naomi. Naomi, how blessed are you that through a family connection, through a kinsman redeemer, through somebody who is willing to buy it all, you are blessed in your old age with lineage. You see, it was Naomi who introduced Ruth to Boaz. It was Boaz who redeemed Ruth, but he redeemed Naomi too. We need fathers and mothers who will introduce people to Christ so that they can be redeemed and it can reach back and get the previous generations too. You might be saying, yeah, but you don't know my mom. You don't know my dad. You don't know my family. They're crazy. There ain't no help for them. 
The Lord said, if I can have you, I can reach back to your past. I can reach back to your generations. And I can connect it all in a way that it doesn't bring you glory. It brings them glory too. I'm not about to take you and leave Naomi in the cold. I'll take you, the land, Naomi, and then when we birth a lineage, it'll be attributed all the way back to her. Could you start something now in relationship with Christ that your parents get credit for? Well, my parents aren't saved. doesn't matter. He can reach back. Pastor Patrick preaches a word called timeless worship about how when we worship Jesus reaches not just to who we are and who we are in the future. He reaches back and he redeems every part of our past. Boaz said, I'll take it all and I'll redeem the past too. And what comes from that? They have a son named Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David, the relationship of a mother led a daughter to a redeemer. We need not only that relationship, but we need people in the church who are living examples of Christ who say, I'll point you to a redeemer too. Now, Chris Valentin from Bethel says, The story of the prodigal son is very powerful. It's a very moving story. He said the problem in our culture is we have prodigal sons coming home to empty porches because fathers have abandoned them. The prodigal son came home to a father who ran after him and embraced him. But before there was ever a running, there was a standing on the porch looking out at the horizon saying, I know that that son's going to come home. Praying and interceding. But our culture now is we've got sons saying, okay, I messed up. I want to come home. And they're coming home to vacant houses. We need to be the kind of people who aren't just connected in relationship, but that connect others in relationship. If the church finds their redemption but they don't want to share it with anybody else, then you haven't got the full encounter. Because when he steps into your life, he'll do such a work in you that you can't help but share with others. I just got to tell somebody. I just got to serve. I got to get my hands around something I can do to look like Christ. Why? Because somebody might see it, and that might be an open door to invite them to Christ. Why? So Christ can step in. He can buy their field. He can buy them. He can redeem them and redeem their past because he did it for me. And when the world said, I want your land, but I don't want you, Christ stepped in and said, I'll take all of it. Why wouldn't we want to share that with everyone else? Too long the church has gotten fat by getting what it wanted and not giving anything away. God made Christ so accessible to us that literally Christ came to this earth and walked around in human flesh. And the church makes him so complicated that you have to jump through hoops. You have to say the right thing. You have to look the right way. You have to do all of these things and check off this list. Why? Because we want Christ to be unapproachable because we want to lift ourselves up and say, I achieved something. It's going to be really tough for you to get to. 
God did everything to make Christ accessible, and the church does everything to make him unavailable. What in the world are we doing? This is a free gift. Jesus said to the disciples, you've received, now freely give. Don't get what you need. And then say, yep, now it's all about me. Good luck finding Jesus on your own. What if Naomi had said, hey, Ruth, you got to go back to Moab. I'm going to go find a kinsman redeemer because I'm going to get what my family needs, but you're not even of us. You are from a land that is full of godless idol worshipers. You're not part of me, but I'm going to go get mine. What if that's the relationship Ruth had encountered? Instead, a lineage is birthed, and Ruth is one of the very few women mentioned in genealogies because everything came through the father's line. But when it mentions in Matthew the lineage of Jesus, it says Ruth and Boaz. Ruth gets special mention there. So keep in mind what is birthed from Naomi to Ruth and Boaz is the lineage that births Jesse, Obed, then Jesse, then David. Now think about this. When the prophet Samuel comes to anoint the next king of Israel, he goes to Jesse's house, says, bring out your sons. Jesse brings out all of his sons. Samuel's looking at him. He's like, man, these are some mighty men. But none of them are it. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I'm looking at all your sons, and I'm not getting anything. Do you have anybody else? Jesse says, I mean, yeah, I've got a young son. He's, he's out busy right now. What's he doing? Well, he's, he's watching my sheep. He's a shepherd boy. He's watching my sheep in my field. Jesse, who would have inherited a field from Obed, who would have inherited the field that Boaz bought back and redeemed for Ruth. David is sitting in a shepherd's field owned by a father who was owned by a grandfather who was owned by a great-grandfather that was the beginning of a redemption story. Can we take it one step further? Several generations pass between David and through Joseph's lineage, as it mentions in Matthew, until Jesus is born. Jesus is born, right? Not where he's growing up with his family. He's born in the land that they're from. They have to travel back. It's tax season. It's the Christmas story. Where do they travel to? Bethlehem. First people to get the news that the Savior of the world is born. Some shepherds. Where are they at? In a field. Outside of Bethlehem, which is where Boaz and Ruth were. God doesn't just care about you. He doesn't just care about your family. He cares about the land. There's no mistakes in God's plan. And even though we fight it sometimes, he's got a redemptive story to tell through us. God cares a whole lot about this planet. Romans 8 the creation is groaning for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. And when it says creation, it ain't just talking about people. If, if on the day of Palm Sunday, Jesus said, 
you can try to keep the people quiet, but the rocks are going to shout out in their place. God cares a whole lot about redeeming lands. Why? Because lands are part of your story. Lands are part of the lineage. Lands tell a story. God has a heart for shepherds. So he made a field, one of the most centrally important places. It's where the savior of the world is announced. Not to royalty, to shepherds. So you might be thinking, okay, I see it. I see the, I see the lineage. I see the relationship. I see the connection with the land. But what happened to Orpah? Right from the beginning of the story. She kissed Naomi. She walked away. She went back to Moab. Back to the false idols. We don't hear much about Orpah. And there's a reason behind that. She's not mentioned any, anymore in the Bible. Orpah went her way and God said, I'm done telling that part of the story. We're just going to talk about the redemption story. But how many of you know, I mean, Orpah was a real person. She had a life, right? So I heard, I heard Chris Valentin mention this and I went and studied this out. And there's actually rabbinical texts. There are rabbinical texts that were written early on, like way before Jesus even, 1000 BC, that they wrote the story of different lineages and things that happened that accompanied the Talmud, right, or the, the Torah, parts of the Torah and their teachings. In some of the rabbinical literature, there is, there is an account of Orpah. It says that she returned to Moab without relationship. She left Naomi. She kissed her, tears streaming down her face. She went back to the land of her people and the land of their gods. In rabbinical literature, it says that she later had a daughter named Harafa. Harafa comes from a root word. It's actually the same root word as threshing. Interesting. Where did Ruth and Boaz really kind of start this redemption process? She met him at the threshing floor at his feet. But this particular portion of threshing actually is in context to the fact that a threshing floor had many men who threshed the wheat. So her name would have indicated by the same root word that she likely didn't have a husband, but she was actually in a lifestyle of prostitution. So Orpah parts with Naomi, returns to her land, presumably gets married, has a daughter, birthed out of an absence of relationship, who never settles down and has relationship with with uh, you know from a marital standpoint with a man but she does have sons some accounts say four some accounts say five because one of the sons isn't named so it's it's kind of tricky but there are four names associated with the sons that Harafa had are you ready for this the first son's name Ishbinabab you probably like it. never heard that name it's okay second name Saf third name Lami Here's the one you might recognize. And then she had a son named Goliath. The same Goliath of Gad who became the Philistine champion. Because in Moab there were giants in the land. And in Moab, it would have been common for the giants to have taken whatever they wanted, including women. She bore out sons that were all of large stature, 
one of which was named Goliath. And what you see is two lineages on a path to have a collision course in history. Two daughters in relationship with a mother. But one chooses to walk away. You might say, well, yeah, but Naomi pushed her away. Naomi pushed Ruth away too. One daughter chooses to fracture relationship and return to her old ways. One daughter says, I'm going to make your God my God, your people my people. I'm not leaving your side. One is redeemed through a lineage who has a young great-great-grandson named David. And the other has a lineage out of relationship apart from Naomi and her God who births a great-grandson named Goliath. What's interesting about that is, and something Megan and I were talking about, and this really just kind of dropped in our spirits. Apart from godly relationship, you might produce something that the world sees as great. But it will pale in comparison to what God can birth when he redeems by way of relationship a family and a lineage. To the world, Goliath was the dude. He was Massive, warrior, champion, nobody. The Philistines, when they go to fight, the Israelites are so, they're so bold up and arrogant with Goliath that they say, send anybody out. Like, we'll practically tie one hand behind his back. I mean, this is going to be too easy. Because to a godless nation, it appeared that somebody had birthed something great. But what Christ was doing, what God was doing Christ is a foreshadow in Boaz, but what God was doing through a family, through a lineage, it birthed a ruddy-looking, scrawny shepherd boy who sat out in a field and played his harp. But he was a worshiper who had a heart after God. And when he, when, when he was attacked, he rose up and he slayed the bear and he slayed the lion. He was anointed king. He steps up in the camp and says, who's this punk? Goliath? Who is he to our God? And they send that scrawny little shepherd boy to fight this massive dude. And he is slain. David kills Goliath. David as king and his mighty men, they kill all of Goliath's brothers. And in that same rabbinical writing, it says that when Abishai came for one of the brothers, he ended up striking down and killing Orpah, the great-grandmother of Goliath. The lineage birthed out of relationship ends in a godless nation rising up against God. And a relationship that birthed a lineage in Ruth redeemed Naomi and brought about a lineage that not only sat on the throne of Israel but sits on the throne reigning with Christ in eternity. King David, a man after God's own heart, our premier example of worship Ended a lineage that was birthed out of relationship, without relationship. Two women set on the same course, but by choosing to separate from family, one births a Goliath and one births a David. And the title of this message is, What Will You Produce? Are we producing Goliaths that our family is getting attacked by? that rise up against our God? Are we birthing Davids who have God's heart? 
who will be used to cut down the wicked. I, I, I want to I put this out here. I, I think Ruth and Orpah had equal chances. But one chose to kiss and one chose to cling. I want to say something else. It might be a little controversial. I think Judas and John had equal chances. But Judas chose to kiss and John chose to cling. Judas betrays Christ with a kiss. John lays his head on his chest and writes the gospel of John and says, oh, by the way, guys, in case you didn't remember, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. One chose to kiss, one chose to cling. Where are we today? What will we produce? What will be said of our family's lineages? Will we create a lineage that helps introduce a land that we've been called to win to a redeemer? Or will we birth more giants in the land that God has to raise people up to go slay? Because we created it. The church has been birthing Goliaths for a long time. Christ asks us to be redeemed in him and birth David's. I want to raise up kids that have a heart for God that go so far beyond what I can even dream or imagine so that for their kids and the next generation, it's just up in the ante every time. I want to raise kids that go into a hospital on a Saturday and seeing people walk out going, sorry doc, I'm healed now. And cleaning out hospitals and, and guess what? And not leaving church cards to say, now that you're healed, make sure you come to our church. It, is that what you want? Do we want to see prodigals come home? Do we want to connect people to their redeemer? And do we want to see a people, a lineage, and a land one for Jesus Christ? That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Not to birth Goliaths, but to birth Davids. What will you produce? Stand with me this morning.